Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Basically, where we're at right now is uh, we got up through verse 8, and we're going to be starting on verse 9, the material starting on verse 9. By way of review, a little bit last week, what we looked at was that the serpent had successfully tempted Eve into eating the fruit. She ended up sharing that with Adam. Adam ended up, along with Eve, figuring out, oh dear, this was not a good choice. And they end up trying to cover up their bad choice with their own human efforts in creating clothes for themselves made out of fig leaves to cover up their nakedness. Uh, Remember I brought in some fig leaves and we got to look at them up close and see that it's probably not a good idea for clothes. But it served a purpose temporarily, but not a permanent uh, solution. And then you remember we looked at the verse, at verse 8, the traditional view is that God walking through the garden in the cool of the day, that maybe there is a particular time of day that Adam and God would walk through the garden in this lush environment. And the possibility that there might also be a different interpretation to that. And the other interpretation, maybe God is stomping through the garden in the storm and, and, and being a little upset, knowing full well what has already happened. I only presented that to you just because it's something that I hadn't run across before, and I presented it to you for uh, you to see as well. Not to suggest that that's the view that's actually correct. We don't know which view is correct. Starting in verse 9, then, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? I'm sorry, I just find this funny that God has to ask, Where are you? Do, does anybody actually think that God doesn't know where they are? No. Now, God knows. The Bible's full uh, of verses that tell us that God knows. He doesn't need to ask this question. So why would he ask? Why would God ask a question that he already knows the answer to? He wants to hear it from Adam and Eve. He wants to hear it from Adam and Eve, right? He wants to draw out a conversation with them, right? this, This is the beginning of why I think maybe the other view is correct as to grace and love. Because he could just destroy them. He could just say, you know what, they blew it. Poof. (laughs) And they're done, right? He doesn't have to engage in a conversation with them. This is information he already knows the answer to. It's a rhetorical question. He doesn't need to know the information. We're going to find out this is the first of a series of questions that are rhetorical and that God already knows the answers to. God doesn't need to ask any of us any questions that he doesn't already know the answers to. So this is the first one. <laughs> Where are you? In, in verse 9, Genesis 3, 9, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? God only asks the question, Where, a few times in Scripture. And it's interesting to look at the other two times. One of them is in Genesis chapter 16, verse 8. You don't have to turn to it. I'm just going to mention it. It's Hagar, right? Hagar's been sent away, and God has a conversation with her. Ends up inviting her to have a conversation with him. And his invitation starts with this. Where have you come from and where are you going? Right? He already knows the answers to those questions, but he ends up eliciting 
information from her to engage in the conversation with God. The other place is Genesis 4.9. That one's so close, you might as well look at it. Some of you might not even have to turn a page. Genesis 4.9, what does that one say? Ooh. Who's that asked of? Who's God asking? What? I heard somebody say it. Cain. Cain. God is asking Cain in Genesis 4.9. Ooh, Genesis 4.9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And what does Cain give? He gives that famous response. How should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? Ugh. No, that was not a good day right there. <laughs> right, that turns out really bad. God could have destroyed Adam and Eve immediately. But he invites them into a conversation that ultimately would seek to resolve the issue temporarily where they're at and to provide for us a framework of the resolution God's going to provide for all of us permanently. So where are you? One of the other things, too, that I like about this is that it has God coming to them. You don't find Adam and Eve going, oh, we really blew it. Let's go find God and see if he can fix this for us. No, their solution is to cover up with fig leaves and go hide in the bushes. Go hide among the trees. It's God who seeks them out rather than them seeking God out. How many times is that the situation in our own lives? When we figure out we've just gone through a sinful situation and we're hiding and we're trying to do humanly something to make up for our bad choices. And we're not seeking out God, but rather God comes and seeks us out. The story of the prodigal son in the New Testament has the son returning, coming home, walking home. And when the father sees him afar off, what does the father do? Does he walk out to meet his son? What does he do? He runs. Exactly right. He runs to meet his son. There's something about God's love and grace and mercy that compels him to do the greater part of the restoration that we need after a sinful episode. God runs to us. God seeks us out when we're just hiding, knowing we're not ready to meet our maker. We're naked and uncovered, and there's nothing we can do to suitably cover ourselves. So God ends up asking Adam the question, where? But Adam ends up giving an answer as if the question was phrased, why? God's question is basically, where are you hiding? And he answers the question as if God had asked, why are you hiding? In verse 10, so he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. How well do we hide from God? I mean, we might think we're doing a pretty good job, right? How, how successful is a person in hiding from God? I mean, if you need an example, give me a, give me a minor prophet for whom a book is written. <laughs> Jonah, right? God said to Jonah, hey, I got a job for you. Cool, I'm God's man. <laughs> what do you got for me? I want you to go to Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. Nineveh, the capital city of my enemy? I don't think so. And what, is, what does Jonah do? Instead of going that way, <laughs> he goes that way. He goes in the opposite direction. Nineveh was not close. Nineveh was a far away, <clears throat> high and right. And Jonah goes far away, straight left. He goes in the opposite direction, trying to get away, trying to hide from God, trying to hide from God's instructions and God's will. That didn't work out. How, how, how'd that go? 
That was a little hard lesson for Jonah to learn, right? How about the lesson for us? Shouldn't we learn from their mistakes rather than making the same mistakes? When we think that we're in a place of successful hiding from God, we need to realize there's no hiding from God. There's no hiding from God. Psalm 139, verses 7 through uh, 7 and 8 say this, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. God, where can I go to hide from your presence? If I could pick the highest mountain or even higher, if I was to find a mountain that reaches up to heaven, I still wouldn't be able to hide from you. If I was to find the deepest place we could think of, if I was to go to the bottom of the ocean, could I hide from you? No, I can't hide from you in either of those places. What makes me think I could hide from you anywhere in between? Anywhere I go to try to hide from God, there's no hiding from God. There's no hiding from God. Next question, verse 11, that God asks is who? And he said, who told you that you were naked? Question number three is, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? All right, my daughters, you guys have heard me say this before. My daughters and I, we like to sit down at the, at the computer and watch YouTube videos, just random stupid stuff on YouTube. And uh, there's one that's called Guilty Dogs Compilation. <laughs> Guilty Dogs Compilation. And <laughs> it's video after video of these dog owners, right, filming their dog. And you see all these videos, you know, one video it shows like the sofa is torn up and the stuffing is out of the cushions and it's all over the living room. It's as if they just came home, walked through the door, <gasps> you know, get the camera, this is going to be ugly, you know. Or, you know, they come into the kitchen and this 600-pound bag of dog food's open and dog food is everywhere, you know. And it's all these people filming their dog and one by one they're asking these rhetorical questions. Was this you that did this? Are you the bad boy? Why are you hiding under the table? Come on. You know, what are you thinking? I'm so cold. You know, they're all the same. They're like, you know, they're trying to look away. They got their tail between them. They know they did wrong. And it's funny to watch this. And it's funny to read this because it sounds like the same kind of questions, right? The person that's filming this isn't going to get a response from the dog. The rhetorical questions. Are you the bad boy that did this? Why are you hiding under the table? You know? What made you think this was okay? You know? This would almost be funny if this wasn't so serious. When God's asking these questions, it's a little bit like the owner of the dog asking the dog the same questions. You know, when God ends up asking these questions, where are you? Who told you? Have you done this? It's not that it's not that the answers aren't already known. God's asking those questions of man. And like I said, it would be funny if it wasn't so serious in the situation here. Because in the situation with those dogs, all right, yeah, you gotta buy another eight hundred dollar sofa. Or yeah, you gotta buy another, you know, forty-five dollar bag of dog food. And a little sweeping up, a little dustpan, and your situation's over, and you have a funny video to show for it. But with our situation and this decision making that went on with Adam and Eve, it's a lot worse. There's no sweeping it up into the dustpan and buying a new bag of goodness. <laughs> All right? There's no buying a new sofa to make up for our sin. Our situation is much worse than this. What does Adam do? Well, let me ask you this. What would David have done? Let's say David one day decides, I, you know, I'm going to go walk out on my balcony or on my roof, and I'm going to look around. Oh, there's a beautiful woman over there. 
and he decides in his lustful thoughts, I'm going to have her, and ends up bringing her to his palace and getting her pregnant and then trying to cover it up by calling her husband to try to have an opportunity to make it look like he's the dad and that doesn't work so he kills the husband and then takes her to be his wife and hopes nobody saw and then more than nine months later because the child ends up being born more than nine months later Nathan the prophet comes to David and says let me tell you a little story and he tells David a story and David gets really engrossed in this story to the point where he ends up convicting himself by the end of the story, David says, the guy that did that, he deserves to die. And David goes, that's you. Ooh. Did David blame anybody else? We have recorded, actually, in 2 Samuel 12, 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart, it isn't to say he doesn't fail. It isn't to say he doesn't make mistakes. It's to say he owns up for it after the fact. What did Adam do? What does verse 12 say? Chapter 3, verse 12. <laughs> Ooh, not a good way to build up your marriage <laughs> by blaming your spouse, right? <laughs> who, does, who does Adam blame? God. God and Eve. He blames God and Eve. Oh. You know, a simple yes would have been a good, a good move on Adam's part at that point when God said, did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? By the way, that, that, that tree, it wasn't a suggestion. God didn't say, hang out in the garden, enjoy all the trees. But that other one, I recommend you don't eat from? Was that the way God presented it? No. <laughs> it was a command. And we look at it and we go, ah, that dumb Adam, he violated the command of God. Yet we're all in the same boat, right? I think everybody here in this room, myself included, could say there's been plenty of times where I knew I was going against God's command. Where something came down and I made that decision knowing full well, just as Adam knew full well, this is not right. I shouldn't do this. And instead of Adam owning up to it, he says, well, you know, she is you. And he doesn't even implicate himself until the last word. Where he says, mm -hmm, I ate. He tries to downplay his part of it. And he tries to play up their part of it. One of the things we do when we're engrossed in sin, and you've probably seen a lot if you work in a criminal courtroom too with inmates, is the more engrossed in sin that you get, the more you want to transfer blame to somebody else even to the point of those that are closest to you, those people that you should be loving and caring for. You see, in these criminal cases, you see a lot of times the defendants will get bailed out by grandma. They'll get bailed out by mom. Somebody you know, puts their house up and post bail, and the guy gets out and he does something again that just forfeits all that love. Okay. And I'm just going to do a quick story about my son. We were in the grocery store. He's pushing the car. And my daughter's in front of him. And so I'm telling him, push the car slow. And so, um, so of course, he wants something he'd like it's a car. 
So he ends up pushing it into her the back of the heel of her foot, which really hurts. And so then she says, Connor, that hurts. And he says, Well, you should have been going so slow. Oh, oh he's blaming her. Yikes. <laughs> Same kind of thing, right? And it comes from an early age. We can conjure up the reasons why somebody else should be blamed quite easily, even from an early age. You know, the person who says, you know, God made me this way. You know, I've got a certain set of genes, and, you know, there's no denying that this is the way, this is who I am, and if I was to be anything different, I'd be violating who I am. So really, you can't blame me for being this way, because this is the way God made me. Right? And they appeal to nature. What's that? <laughs> That's right. So they appeal to nature as if nature was involved in making them the way they were, or God made them the way that they were. And then there's others that say, you know, I shouldn't be blamed or held accountable for my own actions because, my goodness, look at the way I was raised. My parents were deadbeats and losers. The people I was raised with were all thugs and criminals. I mean, can you really expect me to amount to anything above that? I mean, shouldn't this be who you would think I would turn out to be? And they, they would appeal to nurture, right, the way that they were nurtured and brought up. So the naturists and the nurturists. But God says, you know what? Those might play a part in who you are today, but they don't excuse you from being accountable for your own bad choices. And it's the same for us as well. We don't get to point our fingers at these other reasons, these peripheral things that may have had an impact on who we are and may have made the situation a little bit worse than it could have been. But ultimately, we are each responsible for our choices. We are each held accountable for the decisions we make when we dishonor God or when we honor God. Verse 13. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And she does the same thing, right? She ends up pointing the finger somewhere else too. And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So God turns, he addresses the woman. He doesn't even answer the man. He's like, okay, I'm done talking with you, and now we're going to talk to the woman. Right? This is, by the way, the first time that God and Eve are recorded as talking with one another. Kind of interesting there. So she ends up shifting the blame as well, but she ends up stopping short of what Adam did, and that is implicating God in the finger pointing. Adam pointed his finger at his spouse, and then he pointed his finger at God as well, but she ends up, even though she's pointing the finger somewhere else, she doesn't actually implicate God like Adam did. Regarding blaming others, the Bible is clear. James, in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says this when we fall into t temptation. It says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. We're each held accountable because ultimately we're the ones that made the decision to go down that road. One of the sad notes about Adam and Eve in this story is that there isn't any recorded word of them showing contrition. They don't seem to own up anywhere that we have recorded here. It's kind of sad. And kind of a reflection on human nature right up to the present day. Moving on from there, regarding verse 14, God now turns to the serpent so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed. This is the first appearance of this concept of being cursed by God. You are cursed. The serpent is cursed. Do you see in the next few verses 
the phrase cursed again somewhere? Where is it? What does it say? The ground. So yeah, in this rebuke, and we're going to see it as this unfolds, basically, God talks first to the man, then he talks to the woman. And in the discussion, it's about the sin of the man, the sin of the woman, and then the sin of the serpent is mentioned in the woman's discussion. And then there's the rebuke or the punishment of the serpent, reverse order now, rebuke or the punishment of the woman, and then the rebuke or the punishment of the man. All right? And you find cursed show up two times. Once in association with the rebuke of the man and once in association with the rebuke of the serpent. The rebuke of the serpent and the rebuke of uh, what's in, contained in the of man, you end up finding cursed. There's only two things that are cursed, and it's the serpent and it's the ground. Man and woman escape being cursed. One of the interesting things about this is that they were already blessed by God. And it's almost as if God is reluctant to curse what he had already blessed. Man, actually, though, will get cursed later on when we get to the story of Cain. After murder, after that violation by murdering his brother Abel and destroying the image of God, somebody created in the image of God and Cain decides he's going to do that, that's when man gets cursed for the first time. That's when a person gets cursed. So here, man and woman escape from being cursed as the serpent was cursed. In that sense, there's almost almost a little glimmer of hope so far in what we're seeing. Even though it looks like a really bad situation, like the owner of the dog is probably going to spank the dog, All right, there's still a glimmer of hope here. When man and woman are about to get spanked in a big way, there's still a glimmer of hope in the sense that they didn't end up getting cursed like the serpent got cursed, like the ground got cursed. Each of these... Uh, ends up with a penalty followed by a consequence or a penalty followed by the consequence of defeat in the category of defeat. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, the penalty for the serpent is going to be humiliation. And the consequence and the category of defeat is going to be his offspring will be defeated by the woman's offspring. For the woman, the penalty is going to be painful labor and childbirth. And the consequence is going to be defeat in her conflict with her husband. You're going to say, what? We'll see that in a few minutes. And then for the man, the penalty is going to be painful labor in agriculture, and his defeat is going to be in his conflict with the ground, trying to get food from it without exhausting himself. So verse 14, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Regarding curse, if you remember from a few weeks ago, the serpent was described as Arum, or Arum, which most of our English translations have translated as cunning, okay, or shrewd. Some of our translations, English translations, would have shrewd. And now he's going to, going to be cursed. And it's actually a Hebrew play on words. It's cursed. So where he was Arum before, he's going to be Arum. Now he's going from cunning to curse. You know, one of the things about his introduction, the introduction of the serpent, was that he was so cunning, he stood out from among the group of animals. All right? And God is saying, really, you want to stand out? I'll have you stand out in that category of animals. Now you're going to be cursed. If he was standing out at the pinnacle of the created order of animals, perhaps, he's going to stand out now at the bottom of the category of animals. 
he's going to go from one to the other with just one letter change. This idea of cursed, it's a, uh, it's going to occur quite frequently from this point forward. You end up seeing it 55 times in the Old Testament. Uh, you end up seeing it mostly in the Pentateuch, the first five books, books of the Bible. And then you see it eight times in Genesis. Most of it, here, if you want a homework assignment, all right, read Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Deuteronomy chapter 27 and chapter 28. It's a total of, I think, 96 verses between those two chapters. If you want a little glimpse of what it looks like to be blessed by God and a little glimpse of what it looks like to be cursed by God, I commend to you those two chapters. Because they will show you the nature of how God deals with people and what he expects of us in the category of obedience. All right, And that's all about, you obey me, and I will bless you. You disobey me, and I will curse you. And even, that, even though those two chapters are to Israel, the principle remains that God extends to all of us in this present day the same principle of, you obey me and I'll bless you, and you disobey me and I'll curse you. So really, if you haven't read those chapters, if you're not familiar with those chapters, if you think to yourself, I don't know what they say there, write that down and read those later. Because if it's the first time you've ever gone to them and it's the first time you've read through them, it could actually change the way you see God. It could actually change the way you behave. It could change your life. All right? It's about being obedient. Too often, obedience is shoved aside by the wayside in our modern teaching as if it's not important. But God says it is. God says it is. One of the things he says about the serpent is he says, you're going to eat dust. All right? Now, let me get, let me get this straight. The writer is not trying to tell us that the snake goes around and doesn't eat birds and doesn't eat... Now, you guys remember I told you that story a couple months ago where I was hiking. My family and I were hiking, right? And we're hiking over by Casper's. And we end up, I almost end up stepping on this rattlesnake that had just eaten a bird. It was so freshly eaten that there were feathers still sticking out of its mouth and it had the little lump. And you remember I even pulled up a picture on my iPad and showed you guys this speckled... Uh, rattlesnake sitting on the ground because we're not all stepped on it. It's, the writer's not trying to say that snakes eat dust, that snakes don't eat birds, or that snakes don't eat eggs, or you know whatever they come across. He's using this as a metaphor. This is a very common metaphor. It shows up in our Bible and other places where it talks about a humiliation and subjugation. All right? Two other places uh, that we could look at this. Psalm 72.9, Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. Or Isaiah 49, 23, Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. So it's a metaphor. It's basically saying humiliation, subjugation. Right. One of the interesting things, too, about the serpent in, the, in the, the rebuke or the curse upon the serpent is that it says he's going to slither on the ground and uh, the commentators seem to be somewhat divided on whether or not that suggests that the serpent ever had legs. It's kind of an intriguing thought. Maybe the serpent did have legs at one time. We don't know for sure. It doesn't tell us for sure. Well, it's a possibility. And then uh, one of the interesting things as well is that the serpent becomes this creature that slithers on the ground. And later on in the Mosaic Covenant in Leviticus, God tells Moses to tell the people, anything that slithers on the ground, consider that unclean. Don't have anything to do with, don't, don't think about eating that. <laughs> All right, don't eat that. 
All right, moving on from there. Genesis 3.15. Somebody mind reading chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity, enmity between you and woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his head. Heal. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So, in God, in talking with the serpent, or cursing the serpent here, it's kind of interesting to see that the serpent was instrumental in undoing of the woman. And the woman ultimately will be used by God to undo the serpent. All right. This word enmity, all right? I should probably be more careful about filling up this paper this fast. <laughs> but the word that's translated enmity there, that word is used in other places in our Bible, and it often is in conjunction with warfare or with murder. It indicates a life and death struggle between the combatants. And that's how God is describing what it's going to be like from this point forward between the serpent and between the woman's offspring. The offspring of the serpent, the offspring of the woman. By the way, the word that's used there for seed or for woman is zerah. All right? It's a Hebrew word. And we've run across this before. Most of your English translations provide the word seed. Some of them will provide the word offspring. And it's a word that can be translated in the singular or in the plural. So we don't know, by the way, it's used here, whether it's describing something singular as one offspring, as one descendant, or whether it's a plural, as in a group, a group of people. All right? But most of your translators would recognize in this passage what they call the proto-evangelium. Basically, the first description of the good news. This is the first appearance of the gospel message. The gospel message being this. Adam and Eve, you guys blew it. You guys messed up. But I'm including in the curse of the serpent a promise in the distant future of a descendant who will remedy the situation. When it says there in verse 15, I will put enmities, God talking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed, all right, those descendants of evil, all right, those who would perpetuate evil in, in the planet, and her seed. That second one, how many of your translations have a capital S there? Quite a few of your translations will put a capital S. What is that supposed to indicate? By the, what is that indicating the translation committee went with on the idea there? Christ or God. Right. It's Christ or God. Now, granted, they are reading a little bit into that, but providing that capital S... Theologically, they're making a statement for you, okay? But I would say not unfounded, right? That basically they're saying in the distant future, the workers of evil will be overcome by the capital S seed, overcome by the capital S Savior, all right, if you will. All right, that eventually, speaking of Christ, will remedy this situation. You have here that uh, it says he, that's going to be the seed of the woman, shall bruise the serpent's head, and you shall bruise his heel. Anybody else have different words than bruise? No one. Okay. NIV actually has a different translation here. NIV says crush and strike. Okay. The reason I bring that up is because NIV uses two different English words to translate what is actually the same word. So if your translation has bruise and bruise, that's appropriate because it's the same word being translated. All right. And basically it's saying that down the road, this Savior, Christ, he's going to bruise your head. All right? Christ is going to crush the head of his enemy, of Satan. 
and you shall bruise his heel. Implying that the wound that Satan is going to inflict on Christ is going to be on the heel. It's not going to be as serious as the wound he's going to get from Christ, which is the bruise on the head. All right, the crushing of his head. Two verses that are similar to that that Paul would make reference to. Romans 16.20 And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Or 1 Corinthians 15.25 For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. If you remember um, The Passion of the Christ. Remember that Mel Gibson movie? And there was a scene in the movie where Jesus is in the garden and he's praying. And it's that full moon night, right? Which it really was. Which is kind of cool. There are some scenes in that movie that are just kind of ooh, neat to see that. So full moon night, he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then after he prays, do you remember the scene shows him crushing the head of a serpent? And I remember seeing that in the movie going, wait a minute, that's not in the Bible. That doesn't appear in that narrative of Gethsemane. It doesn't. It's not in the Gethsemane part, but I tell you what, it's in the Bible. That Jesus would crush the head of the serpent. They were portraying for us in the movie the symbolism of what is here in these passages that Paul speaks of and this original promise of a savior that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So pretty cool, pretty cool. All right, looking on from that, Genesis 3.16, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Arguably, from the commentator's perspective, a, a woman's greatest fulfillment is found when she gives birth to a child. And apparently before this curse, <laughs> apparently before this rebuke, I guess God's original plan was maybe that that wouldn't be painful. If you've gone through that... <laughs> <laughs> my condolences all right i only hear it's bad i was there you know i got to see you firsthand it was it sounded pretty painful it looked pretty painful who knows how it would have been before the curse i don't know if it would have been pain free or if it would have just been mild but now we're at the point where based on the bad choice of adam and eve it's not mild anymore <laughs> uh yeah pain in childbirth pain in childbirth uh, the interesting thing, too, when you look at it here, though, is she's not cursed with infertility. God still has a provision for her to fulfill what he originally told Adam and Eve to do, be fruitful and multiply. God could have said, you know what? You blew it. You violated the, you know, the agreement that we had. So I'm going to revoke from you the original deal. But there's still that hope in the sense that he's saying, you're going to have children. In what he says to her implies you'll have children. It's going to be painful, but you'll have children. Implying that there's still something there that God has in mind for them in a relationship and in a form for them to fulfill their original roles that they were supposed to fulfill. And then it says this strange thing. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be for your husband. That word only shows up two other times in the, in the Old Testament. It only shows up two other times. One is in the Song of Solomon. Near the end of the Song of Solomon, in the second of the last chapter, near the end of that chapter, uh, the speaker, which is the female, says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. It gives us a glimpse as to how we should understand the word. And then there's only one other place to provide for us a glimpse of how to understand the word. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. 
Turn to Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. This is the only other place to provide for us a glimpse as to what that word means, where the woman desires the husband and will desire the husband. What does it say there in Genesis 4, 7? If you do well, you will, will you not be accepted? And if you do, do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. And the interesting thing about this particular verse is it has both concepts of desire and rule. Just as God is saying to Eve, you shall desire your husband and he shall rule over you. The desire and the rule show up together in tandem for that verse. And here, in this only other place where desire shows up, it has desire and rule. What is the context of the passage in Genesis 4-7? It's right before Cain kills Abel. Cain brought an offering to God. Abel brought an offering to God. Cain being the firstborn, I don't know. Being the firstborn, you would think I've got an in with God a little bit more than my little brother. But for some reason, the little brother gets accepted by God and Cain doesn't. And Cain's upset about that. And he's contemplating thoughts of murdering his brother over it. And God calls him on it. And God says, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. It desires to rule you, but you must master it. You must rule it. So in that context, Cain is being warned of this predator in the form of sin wanting to devour and destroy him. And he is being admonished to conquer and rule that. It doesn't turn out well, though, does it? Cain doesn't take God's advice. Cain doesn't rule over it. He allows it to conquer him. He allows that sin desire to overrule what he's being admonished to do, which is rule over it. So when we look at this passage with Eve and we're asked, what does that mean? Where Eve says, you shall desire your husband and he shall rule over you. Most of the commentators say an inappropriate intention on the part of the woman to rule over the man and then the man responds with an inordinate amount of tyranny back. That the relationship that they once had before the fall was a unified oneness, a whole, okay? And now that's been corrupted to where both parties are vying for the power in the relationship. Does that seem to apply today? That seems to be pretty prevalent today. If we were to just go through our relationships today without any intention on following God's will, we would end up with conflict of both parties in the relationship struggling for who's in charge. Fortunately, Paul provides for us in Ephesians chapter 5. And if you haven't read Ephesians chapter 5, that would be the other passage that I would give to you. Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Homework, if you haven't read this one or if you don't know it. 21 through 33. God provides to Paul for us the instructions on how to counter what we've now in our fallen state come to accept as natural in our relationships where we vie with one another, where we try to assert our authority over one another inappropriately. Another relevant passage would be Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself, that each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. All right, we're going to have to pick up from here next week. Let's close in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us to go, Lord, and to hear from you what parts maybe that you brought to our mind today that you want us to dwell upon. Lord, I'm convinced that you have something for each of us to learn, and I pray that we would learn it. I pray that we would learn from the mistakes of others who have gone before us, right back to the first mistakes that were made. Help us, Lord, not to hide from you. Help us, Lord, to accept your invitation to come and work through whatever we can work through with you. Help us recognize there are consequences to our choices. Help us to recognize there are curses and there are blessings extended to us. And they depend on obedience or disobedience. Help us, Lord, to learn a little bit more about who you are and how you intend to deal with us and how we should be behaving in the eyes of a holy God. We thank you, Lord, for your love and the thumbprints of your grace and mercy throughout the scriptures. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't give up and just snuff us out. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys have a